The Jewish High Holy Days began on Friday at sunset with Rosh Hashanah, marking the Jewish New Year. So, Lashana Tova to all who celebrate. Many of you know my wife is Jewish, so we were at a Rosh Hashanah dinner last night. Apples and honey abounded. Uh, Tashalik was performed, one of the traditional rituals for uh, moving toward repentance. Uh, the High Holy Days continue for 10 days in the Jewish tradition. That 10-day period is known as the Days of Awe or the Days of Repentance. Uh, and it culminates in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, so as contemporary UUs, we do, you know, some of you are Jewish, some of you aren't, but as UUs, we seek to draw wisdom from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science. And one of the invitations this year from the Jewish tradition is to practice forgiveness and groundwork, uh, forgiveness and repentance to lay the groundwork for atonement. And that word atonement's kind of a heavy word. Uh, I think that uh, one of the easiest ways to remember what it is at minimum is just at one minute if you break it into its you know, syllabic parts. Uh, atonement tries to make at one that which is currently broken apart. In the Buddhist tradition, we might call this restoring right relationship. From paganism, we're only a few days away, as C. Raven mentioned, from fall equinox. This time of leaves falling is also an auspicious time to think, what do I need to let go of that I've been holding on to? That can include grievances and wrongs and harms that it's just no longer serving you to hold on to them. That being said, we tend to think of forgiveness and repair and repentance as something that can happen anytime, anywhere, and it can. But I think it's also interesting to note uh, that ancient Judaism included this whole system of when and where, like time and place were all really important, and it had these specific times when the highest levels of reconciliation can happen. And Yom Kippur was this special time in which the highest levels of atonement, atonement, they could happen, but only at one place, the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple, and only one dude, the high priest, you know, and, uh, and only, uh, so, you know, one time and one place and one person uh, kind of culminated in this, this singular annual event on Yom Kippur. So ultimately, I do think there's great value in forgiveness being able to happen anytime, anywhere, by anyone. But I can also see the value in, in being part of a tradition that has this annual time when you're reminded, hey, is there anybody you need to forgive? <laughs> hey, is there any, anybody you need to ask forgiveness of? Is there repentance and repair that needs to happen in your life to, to move potentially toward right relationship? And to that end, I was interested to see uh, that a book titled On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, right? We have a lot of people these days, particularly major figures, who are just really unapologetic, like, you know, about, about things. So this has actually been chosen as this year, you, year's UU Common Read. So there's a committee that gets together and said, if we could only ask all UUs to read just one book, what would it be? And they chose, uh, for better or worse, this book's it's pretty good, uh, but it wouldn't crack my top 10 list of the number one books to read. But there's really good stuff in here. I mean, to be really honest, it needed about two more edits uh, <laughs> to, to get shorter and less uh, repetitive. There's really, really good stuff in here, though. So if this book does leave you curious, I do think this book is a really good resource. And it's uh, written by Rabbi uh, Danya Ruttenberg, and it's published by our own Beacon Press, owned by the Unitarian Universalist Association, which, by the way, I mean, you could do a lot worse than just reading books by decompressed. Like they're just really an excellent publishing house. Uh, so this book started with a tweet uh, that went viral. The tweet said, I want to distinguish between atonement 
forgiveness and repentance, which are three very distinct concepts in Judaism. The critical one, she writes, in my view, is repentance, and that requires real work from the person who has done harm. For our purposes, I want to get less into the technical definitions of these words in the Jewish tradition and more emphasize what the rabbi here is saying of what it means to focus on the repair work uh, of the person who has done harm. As someone raised not Jewish but Southern Baptist, there are deep roots here that some of you familiar with the Christian tradition uh, will be familiar with or may can identify with. Come back with me very briefly to 1517 when a young audacious monk named Martin Luther felt compelled to post 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. At that time, there was a deep corruption in the Catholic Church, and in one famous phrase, Christians were told it wasn't in English, this is kind of changing things to make it rhyme in English, but they said, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, right? So when you drop your money in the offering plate, right, you can buy either for yourself or other people less time in purgatory. Uh, so said more concisely, the church was selling forgiveness, right? Luther found that practice deeply offensive and taught that, no, salvation is not based on money. It's based on faith alone. It's nothing you do. It's just, it's grace alone. It's faith alone. All that sola fide, all those, all those Latin words. Now, I think Luther was right that selling forgiveness is wrong, but what Luther couldn't see at the time is that going all the way to the other extreme of banking salvation on faith alone led to its own abuses. A later reformer named Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it led to cheap grace. It led to cheap grace. You know, I can just do whatever I want and just make sure before I die, I slip in a, I'm sorry, right? <laughs> if I harm you and all I do is say I'm sorry, is that really enough? And sometimes it is, actually. Some little minor affection, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Okay. Uh, other times, deep harm requires deep repentance and deep repair. It's not just about a leap of faith. It's not just about like what I feel in my heart. Like real work is required. And that's what Rabbi Gutenberg's book is all about. In our culture, there can also sometimes be an overemphasis on forgiveness as the only tool in the toolbox. And that's part of, if you take nothing else away from this sermon, I hope you'll see that there's a lot of tools in the toolbox of repair other than forgiveness. Because only thinking your only, you know this phrase, you know, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? You know, that, that's what I'm trying to avoid here. It can put a lot of pressure on the person who's been harmed to move to forgiveness too quickly if you think that forgiveness is the only tool. Have you ever felt that way? I, I suspect many of you had, to feel pressured to forgive before you were really ready or before it was really any way to do it authentically. Well, good news, there are other options. Uh, I like this quote from the psychologist Martha Crawford. She writes, there are many ways to come to terms with harms and violations um, perpetrated by others. Forgiveness is only one. Holding people accountable is another response. Channeling one's energy to rebuilding oneself and supporting others is another alternative. How people heal from abuse or aggressive action is not necessarily dependent even on what they think about their perpetrator. It's more about how you come to think about yourself in the aftermath. If you really stop to think about it, this idea that the only way we can come to terms with violating or traumatic harm inflicted by another is dependent on how the victim thinks about the perpetrator, that's a strangely perpetrator-centric idea, if that makes any sense, whereas there's, there's two in the stance. There's more than one way to move forward with your life. There's more than one way 
to survive, if that's not to put too fine a point on it. Or even possibly, and this is starting to get really psychological, even possibly sublimate energy and transform that into wisdom or growth, with or without forgiveness. I think this is a fairly paradigm-shifting idea for a lot of folks, that healing from harm may or may not involve forgiveness. Let me also add one more layer that's part of the cultural waters that we're raised in and that impacts us both consciously and unconsciously as we approach this area. Some of you will know the Carl Jung saying that the problem with the unconscious is that it's unconscious. So I want to just take a second just here to name just one or two of the unconscious dynamics that, so we can be a little more aware of them. It doesn't make them easy. It makes them a little more workable if we can kind of name these things. It's important to name here historically in the U.S. derail named reparations. You know, we could talk about, or give me the land back, right? You know, I don't, just, I don't want to hear you're sorry. Like, give me the land back if you're uh, uh, indigenous. So uh, it's important to name that historically here in the U.S., we don't have a great track record of doing the work it takes to really move forward with authentic repentance and repair. I'll give you just one example that's uh, pretty famous. Uh, how many of you have read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America? It was the sort of required reading when I was in college. Published in 1835, it's one of those classic books uh, that really revisits uh, rereading even, year, even almost 200 years later. De Tocqueville observed that our sense of individualism here in the U.S., and I think it's even more the case than when de Tocqueville wrote about it, our sense of individualism is so extreme, it can cause us to, quote, think that we owe no one anything and hardly expect anything from anybody. And this can all really impact how we move toward forgiveness or don't. He continues that U.S. citizens tend to, quote, form the habit of thinking of themselves in isolation and imagine their whole destiny involves is only in their own hands. And I think the COVID-19 is just the most recent reminder that we are all actually deeply interdependent with each other. I'll give you one more quick example. Uh, in observing our culture, the international law scholar Lewis Hinken notes that we tend to focus on our rights, what my rights are, how maybe you violated uh, my rights, whatever, your rights. We focus on these rights of the individual rather than our obligations to one another. And that deeply influences our inability to sort of create a, a beloved community in this society. Uh, we focus on what the government can do to the individual rather than what the government should be required to offer its constituents. This insight can also powerfully, again, impact how do, we, how do we move toward building beloved community. So keeping just a few of these background influences in mind, since we are in the Jewish High Holy Days, let's move a bit deeper into the wisdom of the Jewish tradition and what, how that could be helpful for our relationship to forgiveness and atonement and repentance and repair. The figure that Rabbi Ruttenberg points to more than any other is Moses Maimonides. It's a 12th century Jewish philosopher. So deeply immersed in the Torah, the Talmud, the Mishnah, the these Jewish writings, he emphasized, you know, way back in the 12th century that saying sorry is often not enough, that one is not entitled to forgiveness even if you have put in the work of repair. Uh, and I think it's also important to realize that sometimes harm happens despite our best intentions. The classic example here is even if I don't intend to step on your foot, if I do step on your foot, your foot still hurts whether or not I, I meant to. So another thing to kind of keep in mind here is that intent doesn't equal impact, right? You don't have to, ha it's worse if you have malicious intent, if you like intend to stomp on somebody's foot. But, you know, sometimes we have to deal with impact despite our best intentions. And let me also name here at the top, it's important to be honest, sometimes harm simply can't be repaired. It's just, it just can't be. It's hard to hear.
Uh, still, if we want to make our best efforts, where do we begin? Well, Maimonides is going to take you quickly through five steps. He said, if you really want to try to do this, the first step is naming and owning the harm and checking in with the other person that you really understand what, what the harm is. Until we acknowledge it, uh, you just can't, you can't move on. The second is starting to change. That means a lot more than merely making amends. It means substantive, um, measurable action that decrease the likelihood of repeating deep harm. Third is restitution and accepting consequences. This is where our UU eighth principle includes that key word accountability, right? And that's where we've, the biggest change that we're trying to make in our racial justice work as Unitarian Universalists is Previously in the past, we often say, oh, like we need to do something about becoming more multicultural. So we'd like read a book and then like go back to how we were doing things. Uh, our current, you can go to frederickuu.org slash widening to read our ongoing plan. But what you'll, the key thing there is, what are the ongoing things we're committed to doing year after year after year? Not read a book and go back. Like what are the ongoing changes we're going to make? It's only at step four that we get to apology. Right, a lot of people want to skip straight there, to skip to the skip to the apology without taking accountability. The fifth and final step is making different choices. This is where, as the saying goes, the proof is in the pudding. Right, actually living this living this out to cause less harm. So there's a lot I appreciate about Maimonides' five steps, but I also want to share with you the process I've found that's been the most helpful for me and sometimes working with small groups to do um, restorative justice processes, and that comes out of the relationship therapy of John and Julia Gottman. They're really uh, incredible. So this is a powerful process. I'm just going to summarize this. You can look at their work more deeply, uh, but this is another five-step process. So they say, begin by sharing your feelings, because often what happens? How do people want to resolve conflicts? They want to shout recriminations at one another, right? Don't start there, right? Start with your feelings. Just saying, as I think about what's happened between us, I'm so sad. I'm just so sad. Or I'm furious. I'm just so angry about this. Or I feel deep, deep guilt. Like just start to move out of your head and into your heart. Just name the feelings. You know, not, not why you felt that way, not what the feelings, not, not guessing, you know, but just saying, what, what did I feel when this happened? Then you move into the data. The key here is we're not looking for judgments. We're just looking to like that. Is Maimonides is like name the situation. Just name, just the facts, ma'am. Some of you, that's a really old reference, right, Dragnet? Uh, we're looking for just the facts. Briefly describe your, your perceptions of, of the data, just to kind of get that out on the table. And this third one, for those of you who know like uh, Joseph Campbell, this is where we're going to dip below the horizon into the unconscious before we come back up. We're going to dip into the shadow. And so you know that your, a shadow's been triggered when you have this exaggerated response to something, even more, because it's about not just what happened, it's about all the other times something like this has, has happened. So you invite, if either party had really big emotions around, you know, what is it that escalated this interaction for you, you know, the particular word or phrase or action that was really triggering for you? And then go deeper, if people are comfortable, asking something like, if you kind of rewind the video of this conflict in your mind, can you think of a similar event that happened in the past, you know, maybe even in your early childhood. And if people are willing to share that, it can create deep vulnerability, deep uh, intimacy, uh, and really help people understand each other and understand why this conflict happened at such a large scale in the, the first place. Uh, the next step is accountability. Each person is given a chance. You know, what do you regret about this? 
what caused it, maybe what, you know, because sometimes somebody does something and then the other person responds, does something even worse to like out of, you know, out of their woundedness or whatever. So what do you regret? What's your, how, what was your contribution to this conflict? Anything you wish to apologize for? And the final piece is a stretch. Using an I statement, what's one thing or more that you want to commit to doing different? Uh, and I'll give you a key phrase that I found, found is really helpful. You can ask of each other, what do you want knowing, knowing you don't get everything that you want? You know, you make a request of one another knowing that you may or may not um, get that and kind of going back and forth until you have a, a consensus. I've found this five-step process surprisingly effective, and I've found the kind of container it shapes is a lot more helpful than just letting people sh uh, shout at each other their kind of pre-rehearsed talking points. It can unlock some things that, um, so your mileage may vary. If you try it out though, let me know um, how it goes. I'll move toward my conclusion with a few points from the holistic psychologist, uh, Nicole LaPera. As I read these points that have kind of emerged out of her work around similar issues, notice if one or more of these really resonates with you, either with harm you've done or harm other people have done to you that you're trying to work through. She says, remember that you can be a good person who made a bad choice. You're a good person, but you made a bad choice. This is the Brene Brown thing about guilt versus shame. Shame is I am bad. She says, don't do that. Say, I did something bad, right? I just, I did something bad. You can be a good person who made a bad choice. You can fall into old patterns and still be healing, right? Because often healing is a spiral. It's not this linear thing. You can loop back, but still be moving forward overall on your healing journey. You can have regrets and forgive yourself for what you did in survival mode when you were deeply under stress. You can have regrets, but forgive yourself for what you did when you were in survival mode. You can have a past of toxic relationships and still have hope to create stable, secure relationships in the present, right? We all have to give up all hope of having a better past. You're not gonna get a better past. <laughs> But you can relate to it differently, and you can still have uh, you know, secure relationships in the present. Two more. You can have things you are ashamed of and still be worthy of love. You can have things you're ashamed of. This is the Brian Stevenson quote. We are, who works with death row inmates. He says he's deeply become convinced. We are all so much more than the worst thing we've ever done. We're all more than the worst thing we've ever done. You can have things you're ashamed of and still be worthy of love. And finally, maybe just starting with yourself this morning, is there anything you want to say in your heart right now? I forgive myself for this. I forgive myself for blank. Sometimes it's also for ourselves that we forgive, that we finally forgive someone else, not for them, because some of you will know this phrase, refusing to forgive someone for long enough and hard enough, it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's like drinking poison yourself and hoping. So sometimes we forgive other people because we need to move on. But there's a particular way, in the same breath, let me hasten to add that one of the most helpful uh, touchstones I have in thinking about forgiveness is from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It emerges out of the truth and reconciliation process of South Africa. He said he learned that the final step of forgiveness, it's not necessarily renewing the relationship. Sometimes it is, I release this relationship. I just need to be free of it altogether. I need to just forgive you, but that doesn't mean I want to be around you anymore, right? I just, but I, I release this. You also don't have to make the full journey at once. In the words of one Buddhist teacher, perhaps you can open yourself to experimenting even for, your, for yourself or for another. I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. 
I forgive me as much as I can in this moment, and I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. So as we continue to discern, what, what am I called to in this you know, Jewish high holy days or in this season of um, my life to respond to harm I've done, harm done to me, to you, to all of us together? Let's continue to reflect on that. Turn in your, uh, as we sing together, I want you to invite you to rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together.